Thank you for tuning in to Healing on Mars. Today we have a very important topic to discuss, which is alcoholism. Yes, so alcohol use disorder. According to the DSM-5, it is pretty much at least two of the following symptoms, which is a reoccurring use of alcohol in situations that are physically hazardous, cravings, or strong desire to use alcohol, um, and failure to fulfill major roles, so interfering with everyday life, whether that's work, school, your home life, family, and continued use despite having persistent and recurring social and interpersonal problems. Um, some other symptoms include tolerance, withdrawal, taking a large amount over a long period of time than intended, persistent desire or unsuccessful attempt to control or cut down the usage of alcohol, spending a lot of time trying to acquire the substance to use it or recover from its effects, giving up or reducing important activities including occupational, social, or recreational due to the alcohol use, continued use of the substance regardless of knowing um, that it will either cause or exasperate physical or psychological symptoms, and Yes, you have to have at least two or more of these, and it has to last at least 12 or more months. So those are indicators that you may have a alcohol use disorder. Yeah, and I think it's extremely important. Just looking at the statistics, it's very concerning. Like In the U.S., about one in five people develop problems with alcohol over, like during their lifetime. That's insane. Yeah. And the thing is, people will look down on others who who have an alcohol use disorder um, when they they may drink the same amount. They may but they don't have the there's multiple factors to it. So genetics, your environment. And I think people don't take that into consideration very much. No, there's definitely risk factors that could make you more susceptible to having a substance use disorder in general, and specifically in this case, alcohol use disorder, having a parent that drinks, like you said, the gene, a gene that runs in the family. Um, there's other associated risks, but just in gen general, 90% of, of Americans interact with substances that could lead to a dependency. However, because they might just have the genetic makeup or just me might be lucky enough based on their environment, their upbringing, whatever those risk factors might be, that they just don't develop that dependency. So looking down at another person saying, oh, well, you chose to do this. You made a mistake. You chose to drink. And that's why you're in the situation that you are. A lot of blaming mm -hmm. instead of understanding hey, that could have been me, but I was just lucky enough where this didn't happen. Oh, yeah. Like, I am a Facebook wine mom, and I have a drink or two every night because, you know, dealing with the kids is stressful, and I deserve this. But if it's somebody else and they have different symptoms or different experience, then all of a sudden it's bad. Now it's bad. Now you you're the one who made the bad decision. Yeah, it's just a lot of blaming and not recognizing that substance use dependencies are just chronic health conditions. You know, we call individuals who are dependent on substances, substance abusers. You know, it's the same as saying 
for someone who has a heart attack, which is a chronic mm-hmm. health condition or a health condition, you're a heart abuser. Yeah. You know, why? That, that, sounds, we... that sounds fucked up when you say it out loud. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We're blaming a person for having a chronic health condition. Yeah. That in, in its definition, they're using the substance regardless of the side effects. And because they're dependent on that substance, it rewires your brain. Mm-hmm. And in some cases for individuals who are drinking for long, a long period of time and become extremely dependent on alcohol, the withdrawal symptoms could lead to death if not done properly. Yeah. Without any kind of... Uh, management or supervision. Yeah, just cold turkey could lead to death. Yeah, and there was a study 2019 from National Survey of Drug Use and Health. They conducted a survey where they found that 14.1 million Americans have a alcohol use disorder. And more recently in 2021, they found that more than 46 million over the age of 12 had at least one substance use disorder. And only 6.3% of those people received treatment. That's That is a big number. Yeah. I mean, just your first statistic of 14.1 million. That's already. Yeah, that represents 5.6% of people over the age of 18. And although that might not seem like a lot, 5.6% of our population is is. Is a big, big number. I yeah. mean, we already said 14.1 million. That's a lot. And, and the fact that only 6.3% have received treatment, is, it's sad. Yeah, and pretty much n- numbers almost like tripled. Yes, much. and it's, yeah, that's insane that this isn't something that we're thinking about as a society to solve the problem. We're just treating it as this is your fault. This is your problem. 14 million people, it's just their fault and their problem. This is a really big issue. This is a societal issue. This is something that we're going to need the entire community to be in on. We're going to need healing from all domains of our society to fix this issue. This is not something that 14 million people are going to do alone. And 6.3% receiving treatment is unacceptable. And it's not to say that, you know, an individual wanting change is is really up to them. That's not something we can force people to do. But there are things that we can do in our society to reduce harm and to for individuals to receive care. And there's things that we can do as a society to reduce the stigma and the shame around chronic health conditions such as substance use disorders. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. Really, we need to focus on, as a society, to reduce the stigma because we cannot expect 14.6 million people to do this on their own. And not just as a society, as a community, but also family members, your support systems, because those are going to be important people within your recovery. And it reminds me of like that show Intervention where the family would like, sit them down and pretty much force them to go to rehab and then at the end of each episode it's like they give a little description like oh bob did not go through with treatment and he is actively doing this and that and it's just the wrong approach and then on top of that i just saw a video of this mother 
who was pretty much like boasting on TikTok about how she kicked her daughter out. She she takes videos of her, which is disgusting. Yeah, so the individual, um, her daughter, her not getting the support from her family can hinder her if she's going through recovery or tries or attempts because you may want to go through recovery and do what you need to do, but you also need people around you. You need your support systems. Having support, connection is a vital aspect of any substance use disorder. It is a lack of connection that really is a a key aspect of substance use disorders. I mean, if anyone understands what the stages of change are, they would understand that interventions don't work because if someone's not ready for change, they're not ready for change. And you shaming them and making them feel bad and verbally abusing them or taking away support from them is not going to entice them to change. I mean, let's go back to the definition of a substance use disorder. It is literally doing things regardless of the out, of the, the consequences because you are dependent on that substance. And the thing is, when you're shaming someone, taking away support from them, you're making it harder for them to to choose that change because now they know they don't have the self they they already had a defeated self esteem but now they really don't have the support that they need and the confidence to continue mm-hmm. and it's you know it's not to say that it's every person's responsibility to show up for another person if they're having an issue that's a personal choice a personal decision but if anything don't shame them don't make it worse you're making it worse by doing that and it's it it can come from a place of a, a just true ignorance, not knowing, not really knowing that what you're doing is making it worse. They call it tough love, but that's not real love. It it's not it's not helpful. It's not beneficial. It doesn't serve any purpose. And if the purpose is to help this individual move away from this dependence, the last thing they need is to be shoved away and shamed. Yeah. Not to compare the two, but I think maybe this may be more relatable to people who may not understand. Say, um, we've all been through breakups and we've always had that one friend who was like, you need to leave them. You, you, Why are you with them? That's so stupid. And you know the feeling of shame that comes with that because you feel like you can't. And when you don't have the support from your friends, it's like, you can't leave the person and then you stay stuck there. So not to compare the two, but I just thought that maybe that may be more relatable to people hearing it. It It, it is very relatable because I, I have seen it myself. A lot of friends will get will be trying to convince someone else to do something because they care. But when you push someone to make a change because you believe in that change, it can only really create discord with the other person because they're not in a place that they're ready to do that that thing that you want them to do. And I do want to reiterate, it is a personal decision to stay with someone and support them through their healing journey. It is not your responsibility to do that if you feel like that relationship is is really harmful for you. I would never want to sp- spread that message, but Support and connection are vital to recovery, very vital. So not to pressure you to make that decision, but if you're going to do anything, it's don't pressure people to make changes that they're not ready to make because 
it's not doing them a service and it's going to disrupt the relationship that you have with them. Yeah, I just wanted to mention, I know earlier we talked about the statistics of people who are ages 12 to 17 or older than 18, but uh, we don't really talk about how alcoholism uh, shows up in older adults. So just to point put it out there, these are some things to look out for, which is cognitive decline, confusion, sleep disturbance, self-care deficits, injuries and falling, osteoporosis, gastrointestinal problems, infection, and unstable hypertension. Just thought to put it out there because we don't talk about it enough. No, that's a really good point to make because these symptoms might manifest in certain populations differently than others. And it's good to acknowledge that not everything is the same for everyone and we might need a special approach. And not just between populations, but between individuals. Not every person is the same. Therefore, we need we need personalized care for different populations. I mean, for instance, uh, one example of a difference uh, specifically between gender is that women are impacted by alcohol to a greater degree than men because their bodies process it differently. And women are more vulnerable to the effects of alcohol than men. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely would not try to catch up with a man when you're drinking at a bar or something. That is a good point to make because men can drink far, well, I'm talking about on average, but far more than women. And so it could be very detrimental to think that our bodies work the same biologically. Yeah. And I mean, for the longest time, I thought it was just because of, oh, this individual is larger than I am. Therefore, they can handle more alcohol. But it's not just Mm -hmm. that. It's the way our bodies are processing it. So it's important to understand how, how alcohol impacts different people and what that might look like. Yeah, no, I agree. And I know we touched on it a little bit earlier, but there are other reasons as to why people do use and develop alcohol-related issues. Um, One of them being social anxiety. I mean, there are young people who drink to cope with anxiety and experience more negative consequences. Many people, especially college students, Hmm. um, and you want to be in a social setting, you want to be around friends and when you have that social anxiety, it does feel good to drink. And then you drink and you realize, oh, shit, I I feel amazing. I could keep doing this and I'm going to feel better all the time. And that's when it becomes an issue. Yeah, that can definitely create a pattern of misusing alcohol, which could lead to a dependence. Yeah, you're leaving home after high school, uh, presumably, you know, entering college and there's a lot of peer pressure around mm-hmm. you and a lot of a lot of social outings that involve alcohol. Um, so these are risk factors. And an, another thing that happens is people partake into, in binge drinking. So compared with people who do not binge drink, people who, according to a study, people who drank alcohol at twice the gender-specific binge drinking thresholds were 70 times more likely to have an alcohol-related emergency department visit. And those who consumed alcohol at three times the gender-specific binge thresholds were 93 times more likely to have an alcohol-related emergency department visit. Well, yeah, and just in our society, alcohol is so socially accepted and it's so accessible. And it's very interesting, like, telling people like when I didn't drink I would tell them oh no thank you um I'm okay I don't want to drink and they ask why 
And it, it just goes to show, like, that's not normal. Yeah, you're strange yeah, for you're... not wanting a drink. Yeah. That's just unheard of. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can pull from my experience, not that I represent the whole, but in my personal experience, going out in large groups over the weekend, hanging out with people in uh, certain certain groups of people, it's almost as if it's not we're not going to hang out if alcohol isn't a part of that approach. And not to right. say that everyone feels that way or does that. I mean, when I spend time with individuals, I usually like to have uh, really close relationships with people and spend one-on-one time with them. And I typically don't drink with them. But I found that in certain social settings and with certain groups of individuals, it's really a part of the way that they socialize. And it's so ingrained in our society. I mean, it's not just them. I, I know a lot of people who who use socializing, like we talked about it, for social anxiety. It kind of just, it's the thing that makes everyone okay with connecting because being vulnerable is is so scary. Yeah, Actually, recently, I went to a bar with some friends, and usually we all drink together, but I was designated driver. (laughs) So it was very interesting being there, and, like, everybody's dancing. I look around, I'm observing everybody, and I realize nobody's really talking to each other or, like, having me – I mean, me personally, I like having meaningful conversations, but that's just me. Nobody was really – like, how do I explain this? Nobody was really talking about anything. It was just like... You can't have the conversation until you're drunk enough. Right. Like, no one can connect until they're in a place where they get to lose their inhibition and they feel more confident in themselves because, I mean, sure, alcohol does make it very easy to get loose and to open up. But maybe we can find alternative approaches to connecting with other people that are more socially acceptable that allow us to be vulnerable and it not be weird. Yeah, no, I was standing there just thinking the whole time I cannot wait to go home. I was like, this is so awkward. Yeah, and it's kind of hard to not fall into that and to like set boundaries almost when it's everywhere. It's in our advertisements, media. TV, homes. And so it's interesting how this form of drug is so normalized, but say something else like cannabis, which took a really long time to um, become a normal thing and still isn't really. It's interesting how that's looked down upon versus alcohol, where it's expected for you to consume it. Yeah, actually, I was in a lady's bathroom about a few weeks ago and a group of girls were in there and they were basically just shit talking their friend because she didn't want to go out with them and she didn't want to drink and they're like it's just one drink i can't i don't understand why she won't do it basically not understanding that she has a choice and boundaries and not respecting those boundaries and i would just chalk this up to those are just bad friends But another part just feels like this is just so normalized Mm -hmm. that it's like you're the bad person for not wanting to interact and socialize in this way Mm -hmm. and connect in this way. I mean, I don't think it's normalized to pressure people to do anything, but I would say there's a lot of pressure from outside forces such as media and advertisements 
to use this as a very normalized medium to entertainment. You bring up a good point, and that leads me to the next thing that I want to talk about, which is the negative outcomes of alcohol use disorder, which can lead to so many different things that are harmful for the individual, such as like victimization, incarceration, hospitalization, homelessness, use of other drugs, increased symptoms of mental illness, and among people who die by suicide, alcohol use disorder is the second most common mental disorder. And about one in four deaths are by suicide. And it cost the United States $249 billion, and that was in 2010. Yeah. And I'm assuming that's going to be from the hospital stays, the police, the resources not going to work. Yeah, it's that's all accumulated in that number. A lot of different variables. Uh, it's rough. It is really rough statistics. Not just for our society, of course, but the individuals. I mean, that's a lot of deaths. And on that note... It's estimated that more than 140,000 people die from alcohol-related causes annually, making alcohol the fourth leading preventable cause of death in the United States. Oh, wow. Yeah, and research has shown that people who misuse alcohol have a greater risk of liver disease, heart disease, depression, stroke, stomach bleeding, as well as cancers of the oral cavity, esophagus, larynx, liver, colon, and rectum. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought up that part because I think when people think about the consequences of using alcohol, they think, oh, you're going to fuck up your liver. But it's so much more than that. That's a very common, almost cliche fact about the side effect of alcohol use and uh, misuse and long-term use. Um, And on that note, uh, just to point out, the long-term effects of alcohol include dementia, neuropathy, which is pain and burning in the arms and legs due to nerve damage. Like we said earlier, cancer, fertility issues, and like we were mentioning earlier, cirrhosis, which is the scarring of the liver. Yeah, and a lot of negative outcomes can come from withdrawal, which has symptoms like anxiety, insomnia, depression, um, nausea, headaches, tremors. So over a long period of time, it'll be like vomiting, having a fever, increased blood pressure, but then in severe cases, it can lead to seizures, acute episodes of delirium, confusion, agitation, hallucinations, and medical monitoring and medication can be used to reduce the severity of them just to keep the individual safe when they are experiencing withdrawal. Yeah, and, you know, we are talking a lot about the physical symptoms but to correlate this with, you know, mental illness and mental health, uh, many individuals who have a serious mental illness may already experience the negative effects that individuals without a serious mental illness may experience while they're intoxicated when they're sober. Uh, coupled with a small amount of alcohol, though, this could lead to serious exasperated symptoms of their of their psychiatric symptoms such as cognitive problems, disinhibited uh, disinhibited behavior, and impaired judgment. It may also cause relapse of depression or psychosis. And the worsening of psychiatric illnesses especially affects mood problems such as anxiety and depression. 
a lot of individuals may use alcohol as a way to reduce their anxiety, such as social anxiety, and it might help them in the short term, but however, it, it can worsen them in the long term. Yeah, and there are some functional issues that go along with it. I know we touched a little bit on the loss of family support earlier and the social isolation, like not being able to drink with friends or having so much social anxiety where you feel like you need it and then the cycle repeats itself. Behavioral problems where when you're under the influence, you're going to act a certain way different than when you're sober. Uh, the inability to make use of the treatment that you're receiving, inability to work, difficulties managing money, which can go hand in hand with the whole inability to work thing. So as we've noted, you know, a lot, a lot of negative outcomes due to substance use disorder, uh, which leads me to talk about the treatments that are available. And I know we've discussed alcohol use disorder specifically and have mentioned how it relates to mental illness a little bit. But I want to note that specifically for co-occurring treatment, which is co-occurring just means you have a substance use disorder at the same time as a mental health condition, and you're receiving treatment for both of those. Integrated treatment is an evidence-based practice that has been found to be effective in the recovery process for consumers with both a mental health condition and a substance use disorder, such as alcohol use disorder. And it is essential that an individual receive treatment for both at the same time from a either a, a facility or care provider that is specialized in both mental health treatment and substance use treatment so that they're receiving treatment that is from the same modality, the same philosophy, and so they can receive parallel treatment that doesn't contradict one another and works hand in hand to support the individual depending on how their symptoms might exasperate one another. Yeah, integrated treatment is the preferred method because it addresses all of the consumer's diagnosis and the symptoms, but this is within one service, uh, one agency or program, and through one team. So versus non-integrated treatments, it helps with the substance use, mental illness symptoms, uh, treatment retention, it's cost-effective, and people find that they're happier after receiving that type of treatment. And then there's parallel treatment where the person is treated for both disorders but by separate providers and this can get a little muddy and maybe even harmful because they may have different philosophies, different approaches, there's no communication, which is why integrated treatment is so much better because these service providers are trained in both the mental health condition and the alcohol use disorders. So they're receiving treatment that is specialized for them versus hearing two separate things from two different providers, and that can be very confusing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which leads me to another type of treatment that is not very helpful. Uh, it's known as serial treatment. And this is where a client is treated for one disorder at a time. And unfortunately, this was very prevalent in the past and is changing nowadays. But it was where an individual would go for treatment at one facility or agency 
and they would be told, well, you need to deal with your substance use disorder first before you can receive mental health treatment. And that that philosophy in of itself was so harmful and led to worse outcomes. Um, for example, say an individual who has post-traumatic stress disorder is going uh, for exposure therapy, uh, a type of trauma treatment, um, where they're exposed to their past trauma, which is inducing more anxiety and depression. Uh, but they also have an alcohol use disorder. And they use this as their main source of coping. Uh, and they already really don't have a hold of managing it because they need treatment for it. So this person's put in an environment where they're more stressed out and need some sort of relief. So it just makes sense. They're going to use alcohol to cope with their now worsened symptoms. And that might exasperate their already alcohol use disorder. So, I mean, it goes hand in hand. You can't just treat one without treating the other. They both relate to one another. And treatment providers need to see these things as a holistic issue. It's not just one problem or the other, or let's do this first and then we'll do that. You need to treat both of them. Right. And there are outcomes because, like you said earlier, it is evidence-based. So they find that there's reduced substance use, improvement in their psychiatric symptoms and functioning, decreased hospitalization. So there's also more housing stability, fewer arrests, improved quality of life. Pretty much the opposite of the consequences that we said earlier. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer at this point. Every co-occurring treatment agency needs to adopt an integrated treatment modality because the facts are there. It's less helpful, possibly worse, to just treat one or the other or treat them at different facilities or a different agency. They need to be in an environment where providers are communicating with one another and treating this individual as a whole being, not just a separate entity. All, all of our wellness domains, our financial, emotional, physical, spiritual, all those things impact one another. We are one being. We don't just have small facets of our life that don't impact any other part of our lives. Mm -hmm. They all go hand in hand, and we need to treat people in a person-centered approach and treat them as if they're one being, they're one whole being. Why do you think it is that, like, we have all this evidence and we know that this works? Why aren't we adopting it? Well, I mean, I can't say that all of these people are educated or aware I don't know if that's the reason why maybe they just don't know the facts of how of how helpful it is to have integrated treatment. Um, if they do, I would say stigma is a huge issue. This false concept that, oh, I can't help you if you have mm -hmm. a substance use disorder. And maybe even the stigma of like putting blame on an individual. Oh, you're not you're not willing to take care of this problem. How are you going to take care of that other problem? Right. Or the stigma of like, I don't want to deal with this problem. I don't want to deal with this. Or even the I don't know how to deal with this. I was never trained. I went to I went to school to be a social worker. I went to school to be a, a, a psychologist. And we didn't talk a lot about this particular topic. We weren't trained on how to deal with co-occurring issues. 
Uh, we don't know how to deal with this. So we're just not going to deal with it. We're not going to educate ourselves or take the extra step to integrate, you know, these things. Yeah, no, that's interesting that you say that because the lack of sufficient resources for mental health services and medications and the treatment programs will lead to not so successful outcomes for people with mental illness. And these resources could potentially enhance both recovery rates and the speed of recovery significantly. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely a goal that we need to strive for. We need to strive for integrated co-occurring treatment. Yeah. Um, and that reminds me of harm reduction, which is not just society creating programs and policies and different ways to reduce harm for individuals who have both a substance use disorder and a mental health condition but also creating space for an individual to heal and recover in the way that fits them because no individual is the same mm-hmm. and what recovery looks like for each individual and what and what healing is and what health is to an individual is different than it's everyone not, yeah, else. It's not one size fits all. Absolutely not. So we need approaches that can understand that. We need to destigmatize substance use disorders and mental illness particularly because when we shame people for taking steps in the direction that can minimize the harm that's caused by the coping techniques that they're using or unfortunate symptoms, then we're we're shaming them and making it less likely that society will support individuals in this population and making it so individuals are less likely to reach out for support. Yeah, and there's just so much that we could do as a society to make harm reduction easier. You can't start anything without education. So education and prevention programs, like these programs can provide information about risks and potential harm that's associated with excessive use of alcohol. And there's even like going as far as policy and legislation, like implementing policies and regulations to control the availability and the use of alcohol, setting minimum drinking ages, uh, regulating the times of places where they could be sold, because I know hard liquor is not sold after like 10 o'clock, something like that, or at least the state that we're in, and drunk driving laws. So laws like that, we already have pretty much, but... For society, it helps us reduce the access to these substances, which may help uh, and and other ways that we can help reduce harm as a society is by having more treatment access, like we were talking about earlier, integrated treatment, having services that are evidence-based and to reduce the stigma in our society so that when an individual does go to the hospital for a substance use disorder, they're not treated poorly and that they don't feel scared to receive mm-hmm. help. Uh, we really need to create an environment that has understanding and compassion. Yeah, and feel safe. Yeah, people need to feel safe. I mean, how how is an individual who's already struggling with something so, so fucking difficult, you know, going to get through their recovery by being shamed and discarded and told they're not worthy of being a part of this society 
But they're supposed to work so fucking hard mm-hmm. to be a part of this society and to follow the rules that everyone has laid out for them. But then society's going to shame them when they're trying their hardest to, you know, overcome this this challenge. Yeah. And I think a lot of times, especially in some certain groups, uh, abstinence is pretty much like they're telling them, oh, you have to be abstinent. You have to be sober if you do this. Like you've pretty much giving the idea, telling the individual that they failed, um, which can be very harmful, very discouraging, and it it makes them feel like that's the only thing that they could do. But there are other ways that they can reduce the harm, and that's the whole point: is that you don't change habits, you don't change yourself overnight. There are little things that you could do, such as. Just drinking in moderation, you're still drinking, but it's in a smaller amount or an amount that you feel is safe. You could substitute it. So, like, you could substitute alcohol with a less harmful substance, like like mocktails, for example. I know there's mocktail bars, um, marijuana. That, you know, some people may look down upon that, but if it's going to be less harmful to the individual, then fuck it. I think it's really important to... Just note that it means it's less harmful for the person. It means their recovery isn't based on your standard of health. It's based on what is helping them have the the confidence, the will, and the ability to pursue their passions, their desires, obviously without hurting another individual, but just pursuing their own livelihood in the way that they best see fit. Uh, And that might not look the same for everyone. There are things that people, like, they don't realize they already do that is harm reduction, that we need to praise them more and, like, give them more support and tell them that they're doing good when they do pace their drinks, when they are eating before drinking, hydrating throughout, if they're avoiding drinking games, avoiding drinking and driving, those are still harm reduction. So if you are doing that, you are actively helping yourself yeah absolutely i mean there's different ways that people as we said it's person-centered so it's based on what is less harmful in terms of the severity of their drinking or what that means to their health and their well-being mm-hmm. um but like you noted earlier you mentioned that individuals don't understand that there are stages to change change doesn't happen overnight and that's really, really important to grasp. I mean, a part of recovery is relapse. That mm-hmm. is a part of recovery. Growth is never linear. We have bumps in the roads. We fall back 10 steps. We go up 20 steps. We go back three steps. You know, it, it really depends on the individual, but no one's life is linear. No one's recovery is linear. And we really have to understand the humanity of the fact that no one's recovery is going to be the same as everyone else and there may be pitfalls in the road and we need to create room for individuals to have these experiences. Yeah, and I know this was a more serious episode, a lot of information, but it is very important. I do want to end it with a few affirmations. I am more than my addiction. I am courageous, resilient, and capable. I am deserving of love, compassion, and understanding, and I am not defined by my past, but my actions today and in the future.